we have these handy-dandy little sermon booklets. We encourage you to take notes. Now, I don't have any Grace Bible Church pens. They're all on eBay. Collector's items now. Trying to pay people to take them. So, that's just kidding. Um, We have these little booklets. If you'll notice, there's 60 pages in this booklet. The reason is, is because I anticipate us being in this series about the church for a while. I don't want to put a cap on it. I know I have the tendency to do that, and then I disappoint a lot of you. Like, I thought you were going to teach on this. It's like, well, I don't have a clear conscience to do that right now. Uh, I will go ahead and tell you this. I'm not trying to sound super hippie, spiritual, or anything like that, but I'm trying to let this, what we're going to talk about in the church, be organic. And what I mean by that is not free of GMOs. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is, is I am really trying to be prayerful and allow for the Lord to lead me in a direction of what needs to come next. And so if you notice, if you've gotten a handout and you looked at what the idea was going to be today, the very first thing that we're going to start talking about is dispensations. The reason why we're going to, and, we're, and here's the interesting thing, we're going to start talking about dispensations. I don't even know that we're going to get to dispensations today. That's how much we need to talk about it. And here's the reason why. The church is not a building. Now raise your hand if you knew that. Okay, so a lot of us did. Some of you are looking at me like, I thought that's where I was. You are. But this building could easily be the fraternal order of eagles. Is that a risky enough illustration for you? With the exception of the commonality and the unity of the people that inhabit it. Does that make sense? We are all called by one Lord. We are one people. And not only are we one people, but get this, we are unique of anything else that you have ever heard about or seen or will ever experience in history. How do I know that? Dispensations. Because God's word tells me. And so what I'm going to do is I want to give you a little introduction, number one, to our commitment of these subjects, number two, about what in basic first mention form the church was considered to be, because that's extremely important. And that's probably all we're going to have time for today. Sunday school starts today. I'm being a little bit more respectful of everybody's time. I want to keep you longer, and I don't want to give you more information what you need, but I'm going to tell you this. You are going to need to study, okay? And I don't think this is anything unreasonable to ask of any Christian because we all need to know our Lord more. None of us have it down, except maybe Pastor Steve. We're all trying to climb to his level, right? So, nobody thought that was funny? <laughs> Pastor Steve, you didn't think that was funny? Thought it was real? Was real? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin's like, whoa, he's telling the truth here. <laughs> okay. So, let's look at this. Second Timothy, I want you to look at verse 15. Now, if you have a different translation from the NASB, God bless your heart, because you're going to see something interesting in this variation of verse 15. Notice it says, be diligent. Let's read the verse and then we'll break it down. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. How many people are familiar with this verse? I I especially felt that Deb and Scott would be. That's what Awana means, right? What does Awana mean? A workman approved, not ashamed. 
The whole thing that's trying to go on here on Wednesday nights is to train up our children to be able to know and accurately handle God's Word. Why? Because that's the most important education they're ever going to get in their life. Only God tells us the truth. Now, we have in the NASB, be diligent. If you have a different translation, what do you have? What's it say? Study. To to be approved, do your best to present yourself. If you want to write some of these things down so that we can break down this verse for you real quick. The idea of being diligent is the idea of exerting yourself. In fact, do this real quick so you can see this. If you want to write down exerting yourself, it's fine. I'm going to give you a little bit more to it. But if you will just turn over two chapters to chapter 4, verse 9. Paul uses the same phrase here. Look at verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. Everybody see that? And then look down at verse 21. Make every effort to come before winter. Maybe Paul was ministering in Wisconsin. We don't know. But as everybody see, make every effort. Make every effort. It's the exact same Greek word as we're dealing with here in verse 15 that says, be diligent. Now, why do you think that some translations, because here's the thing, Bible translators from Greek into English, they're not fools. They have every intention of wanting to represent God's word faithfully because people are going to read it and grow thereby with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Why do you think they opted for study? Why? If we see make every effort, if we see be diligent, and some translations decided study, exactly, because it is a correlation of how we should handle God's word. Now, I'm going to say this, don't get hurt, okay? I'm just not a big fan of little devotional books. I'm just not. And let me tell you why. They'll give you one or two verses, and usually in a translation that is a little bit further from being accurate, okay? We usually deal with something, if you're in hermeneutics class, it's more of a dynamic equivalence rather than a formal equivalence. It's, it's more thought for thought than it is word for word. And so that's a little concerning. But then you've got three paragraphs of whatever the person wrote that they thought about it. Is that really renewing your mind with the word or they want you to think along what they're saying? You see what I'm saying? So I have a little bit of a friction in, in dealing with some of those things. I, I want people in God's word, absolutely. But sometimes I wonder if our devotionals are a little bit more defeating. This is why I love Pastor Steve's chart method. You're in the Word, and you're in the Word, and you're in the Word. And you can read what other people had to say about it, but what matters? The Word. The Word is what does the work in the person. So if we're to be diligent, if we are to study up, exert effort, make every effort, here's some other things I found. Make haste, be zealous, be eager. Everybody get the idea? It's almost like if some, you know, we say to Nathaniel, hey, if you finish your dinner, we got this Reese's cup. Kid's almost choking, right? Because he wants that goal. Well, that's the idea for us. The goal. Put in the hard work. Or one, one great definition I like, work up a sweat. Anybody ever worked up a sweat studying God's word? Man, that's kind of how you know you're getting somewhere. Right, just dripping all over your pages. I don't know. Be diligent. Or let me say this, church, go for it. We have God's word. We have God's word. Now, I'm going to tell you guys a little secret. Now, and I'll tell you this up front. I don't judge you, okay? 
I don't. But sometimes I'll walk out of these doors. Maybe I'm come through to get me a water or something. I'll walk through, and I go by the coat rack, okay? And some of you don't know how to take your clothes home, which that's okay, right? Because I just take them home and I, I wear them. So, but, <clears throat> just kidding. Uh, but, anybody know what's on the top rack of the coat rack? Whose Bibles? Because if they're on, huh? I do know whose Bibles are up there. But if they're on the coat rack, what's going on during the week? They have other Bibles. Man, you know what that tells me? Connie's Bible's on the coat rack. That's what that tells me. Actually, I got other Bibles at home. I don't even know what you're talking about. Right? Cold shoulder the rest of this week, I promise you. But here's the thing, uh, and, and yes, I get it. We, we do live in a world where we have an abundance of Bibles at home. Praise the Lord for that. But can you see as a pastor where I would be concerned that throughout the week, sheep are starving because they left their food in the building? Everybody see that? Now, is Laverne here? He's not. If you were a far, not yet. <laughs> See, Megan, there you go. All right. Farmers, do you feed your, 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 your chickens? Yes? Yes. Why? Because they're hungry. Because they need it. Because if not, the trickle-down effect is detrimental to everyone around that chicken, is it not? Guys, it's the same with the church. It's the same with the church. So when we're called to be diligent... To get in there and make every effort. But notice what it is. Be diligent to present yourself. There's the goal. Present yourself to who? The only audience that matters. That's who it is. Imagine. Think, think back to high school. Anybody get jitters when you had to make a presentation? You guys, I said this yesterday in seven practices we were talking, you guys would never believe this. I used to be scared to death to get in front of people. I was all like, is it my turn? You know, just nervous, anxious beyond all reason. Not the case today, but that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But we are going to all give a presentation before the Lord. The Lord sees everything. You cannot help but to read this verse, and if you ponder upon it, you think about the attribute of him being all-knowing, all-seeing, immediately in our stead. Well, if that's the case, he knows the quality of our work with his word. Make every effort to present yourself approved to God. And notice, there's the positive, right? As a workman, a workman, this actual word is used for people who go out and toil in the field. People who are harvesting crops, planting seeds. Is that hard work? Yes. Does everybody get what Paul is using? This isn't just like, I think this word sounds great. This is intentional by the Holy Spirit. He wants us to understand the investment that needs to happen. And I promise you this, if, if, if you say, you know what, sometimes I get in the Bible, I don't get anything out of it. You haven't dug deep enough. There's tons here to get. This is not a boring book. In fact, this is better than most comic books I've read. At least it's more real. And it's a lot more filled with action. You ever sit down with a little kid and try to explain David and Goliath? That's interesting. How many stones did he pick up? Five. Anybody know why? He only used one. 
Goliath has four brothers. And David was going to go after them too. That's a good story. That is something that really actually happened in history that God wants to use to whittle his people into the image of Christ. Why? Because there need be no fear. Everybody see how beautiful that is? We just talked about that in the span of 45 seconds. Good grief. Now we all want to go home and read about David and Goliath, something we've read a million times, but we're going to learn more about it. Approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. There's the negative. Approved as the positive. Does not need to be ashamed. Anybody ever been publicly embarrassed? What does that feel like? It's horrible. I mean, that's just what it is, isn't it? It's a... <laughs> Make sure that's on the record. <laughs> what does it feel like to be embarrassed? Tom's comment, it's embarrassing. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. You're done for today. Okay. <laughs> Does not need to be ashamed. Are we talking about an embarrassment amongst your friends or your family? Where's the embarrassment at? Before the only audience that matters. God, I could have, but I just didn't. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be in those shoes. And notice the command is an encouraging one because it's letting us know, here's how you handle this situation. With the gift that I've put in your hand, here is how you navigate it successfully. So now notice what it says after that. Accurately handling. Accurately handling the word of truth. Some of your, your versions say rightly divide, right? Rightly divide the word of truth. What other what other do you have in your translation? What's to say? Correctly handling. What else? Don't be shy. You're only going to be recorded and on the internet for eternity. It's okay. No, seriously, other translations, what do you have? Correctly explaining the word of truth. That's a good one. Here's some of the ones I found. Rightly divide. To cut straight. To make a path straight. Imagine that you've got a field and you need to connect a pathway from your house to your neighbor's house. But the problem is, is that when you walk out there, you've got sand everywhere. You've got some spots that are just weirdly wet for some reason. People get their foot stuck in. Got rocks that they have to navigate over. It's just not the most ideal walking space. And so the idea behind this Greek word is to get all the obstacles out of the way so that the path of which to travel down is straight and smooth and desirable. That's the idea. If you've ever studied God's word and you found some things that are difficult to understand, notice that the way this is telling us to handle is put in the work, work up the sweat, give forward your best effort Stick with it and understand that God is your only audience that you need to work about. And what you will find is that those paths that seem difficult will then be straightened out for you so that it will make much more sense about the Word of God. Now, why do I bring all this up? Because this is what I'm going to ask you to do through this entire series on the church, is to get in there Monday through Saturday and study, read, research. If you don't know how to use a concordance, find somebody in hermeneutics class. They know. They've got it down. We have a library that is bursting 
with some of the most valuable resources I've ever seen in a church's library. Good stuff. Take advantage. It's free. You can go in there and you can check it out. We have five or six choice volumes that deal with the church in particular. I'm going to ask you to make every effort to get involved and invested. Rightly handling the word of truth. So we clear on that. Yes? Okay, let's start. Everybody turn to Matthew 16. We often know Matthew 16 because of Peter's great confession that takes place in this chapter. Jesus asks some questions. He wants to know public opinion. And what he ends up finding out is that the most important things are what his disciples, his immediate disciples, think about him. So we know you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? But there's a little bit more that's going on here that we need to take note of. Chapter 16, we'll start in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now, real quick, if you just want to know, if you can think geographically, you, you have a, a basic layout of, of what that looks like. Sea of Galilee is up north in Galilee, okay? So we're talking about 30 miles north of that. So it's, it's way up north there. It says, he was asking his disciples. Now watch this. What, is the po- what are the latest polls that have come in? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Now this is what scared Herod the Tetrarch so bad, Right? He thought that after the beheading of John the Baptist that John had come back from the dead. Oh, he was in for it now because of what he did. How about the next one? And others, Elijah. In fact, if you look over in the next chapter, verse 10, chapter 17, verse 10, you find out that that's exactly who the scribes thought he was. He was Elijah reincarnate. Now, let's go ahead and kill that real quick. Reincarnation does not exist. It's not a thing. It's Egyptian folklore, and it's also known technically as garbage. So let's move on. But still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So notice whatever characteristics, rumor mill that was going around, popular opinion, what the conversation was at the water fountain, what everybody was texting one another at that time about Jesus, was that he was obviously connected in some way to a holy person that was revered greatly and esteemed highly. Would you agree that that's who Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist? I mean, everybody mesmerized by these people. Or another one of the prophets. Everybody wanted to name a prophet because they were considered the holy men of old. Jesus was lining up exactly in that same mold. That's the information that they got about him. Now Jesus turns it, and look what he says. He said to them, but what, or sorry, who do you say that I am? Now let me just have a little tangent here for just a second. What Jesus just said in verse 15 is the most important question that you can ever ask a person. This is the whole reason why we are called to evangelize. Not one person is going to get off of this earth without needing to have an answer to the question, who is Jesus? Everybody, I mean, let's be, who here thinks that you can remain opinionless about Jesus? He just doesn't allow for that, does he? 
He's too controversial. He's too in your face. The things that he's doing are too supernatural and they're strange. And I'm not for sure if miracles can happen today and those types of things. And so there's a lot of things that he's doing that at least arouse the question of, he's not like anything that I've commonly seen today. I've got to have an answer about who Jesus is. Now here's the question. If everyone needs to have an answer about who Jesus is, why? Why is having an answer about who Jesus is important? Do we know? Because Well, you have to answer for it, but before who? Before God. The exact same person of whom we are to be diligent in presenting ourselves before him, that we would not be ashamed, that he would approve of the work that we've put in. All of this ultimately comes back to being answerable before God about the positions that we hold about significant matters. Not just that this book claims to be truth, but the fact of the person of truth is standing in their midst and asking the questions, who do you think I am? Imagine being there. Imagine Jesus saying that. Art, who do you think I am? <laughs> and art passes out right isn't it interesting that peter's the one who speaks up i mean we expect nothing less right at this point but i sometimes wonder i guess the other 11 didn't dare answer this question because what's the problem we're so self-conscious we know right what if i get it wrong <laughs> what if you got who jesus is wrong in answering jesus to his face i'm going to hell for sure oh my gosh Not necessarily. Thankfully, Jesus is more gracious than that. But look at what Peter does say. And think about this. Peter is basing this answer off of what has been shown to him. We're going to see that in the next verse. But but imagine the interactions. The Well, we've we've been here all night. We haven't caught anything on this side. We'll cast it on the other side. Those types of things. Let me come out to you. Yeah, come on. Walk on the water. You can come to me. Don't doubt. You doubt, you sink. This is this. These are the types of experiences had. We, we don't have enough food for everybody. Well, watch this. I'm going to multiply fish and bread. Everybody's going to eat, and we're going to have so much left over. We're going to send it to the food pantry. Good stuff. Okay, so so this is this is good stuff. Now look what he says, verse sixteen. If you don't have it marked in your Bible, mark it. Simon Peter answered, "You are the Christ." Now, if you have a more literal translation than the NASB, which I don't know if there is one that translates it this way. Or if you look at the NASB, or if your translation has it, I'm not for sure. You'll have a little number next to this. You should, if you have marginal notes. Does everybody see that? What does it say? You are the what? You are the Messiah. That's what it is. Not yet. Not Son of the living God yet. You are the Messiah. Now, immediately, immediately, when a Jewish man is going to use the phrase, you are the Messiah, the implications on this declaration are pregnant, okay? Because what he's saying is, is the 39 books that we have before this time period all culminatively in culmination altogether, but I had stutter speech. I don't know. I don't even know if that word exists in Kentucky. I'm not for sure. But anyway, it all points, reaches forward to one common theme of a promised deliverer who will save Israel. When we say the Christ, 
We are talking about the Hebrew equivalent of the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who will save not just Israel, but the world. This is a massive declaration by Peter. You are the Christ, and not just the Messiah that's been promised from the Old Testament that all of the prophets, that Moses, that the law points to, that was promised in Genesis chapter 3 of being the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Not just that, but you are also the living God's son, the son of God. This is a massive declaration. Some people would say, well, we, don't, we still don't know if Peter was saved at this point. Good grief, I just got saved reading this, right? But notice, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What is he saying? Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, or Simon son of John. It can be interpreted either way. And here's the reason why. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, somebody didn't come along and evangelize you. Instead, God has revealed who I am to you. As Peter was experiencing daily life with Jesus Christ, he came to conclusions. He's like Elijah? Yeah. Like Jeremiah? Yeah. Like John the Baptist? Yeah. Like some of the prophets? Yeah. But he's so much more. Now, these were all men that were highly revered in Jewish society. And Peter's conclusion of spending day after day with him is, as great as that is, you are far greater. In fact, that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. As great as all these things, all these, all these uh, wonderful truths we have as far as Judaism is concerned in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is much greater. Why would you ever want to abandon him? That's what that book is about. So notice, blessed are you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this. Somebody didn't come along and knock on your door and cold call evangelize you or hand you a tract. Look what he says here. He says, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, he makes this transition that is extremely interesting. And what's interesting about this is this is the first mention of the word church in the Bible. The word church is never mentioned in the Old Testament, not once. And what's very peculiar about the mention of this word church is that Matthew is the only gospel out of the four that mentions this word church. The word church is used three times in Matthew. And the reason is, is because Matthew is drawing a precursor to the dispensation that is to come after this time. Fifty-five times Matthew's gospel uses the word kingdom. And that's what Matthew's gospel is about, the coming kingdom of Christ. That's what it's about. But, for some reason, three times, this idea of church is brought in almost seemingly out of nowhere because Jesus has something important to say. Now, does anybody remember, just real quick, I know it was a long, long time ago, does anybody remember from the Foundational Framework series, the law of first mentions? Does anybody remember that concept? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Okay, so Jamie and no one else. You guys are making me look really bad. Okay. Here's what the law of first mentions is. The first time that something occurs in Scripture, you are needing to take note of everything meticulously that it says because a first mention in Scripture is going to lay the foundation for everything that springs out of it, either in word or in concept. Let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 3, what takes place for the first time? Do we need to go back to Genesis 3 and go through it? What takes place in the garden? Eve's hanging out. 
Adam's not being responsible? Sin! Sin! Would you say that whatever transpires with the first sin in the garden, we need to take careful note of and observe everything possible so that we will understand sin as we continue to read through the Bible, yes? Okay. So if that's the case, that moment in history is pivotal to us understanding what comes forward. What do we find out about sin in that chapter? Number one, did did Satan cause her to sin? No, did he tempt her to sin? Yes, who sinned? She did. See that? What does that immediately establish for you? Sin is a matter of personal responsibility. You see how that works? Now, what's interesting about that is sin also brings what? Death. We see that. We see that from chapter 2. If you do this, you will surely die. Then it happens in chapter 3. What can you guarantee is going to happen? You're going to die. We also have the promise of the Messiah in infantile seed form. And that is the idea of, yeah, the serpent's going to come along. You're going to crush his head. He's going to bruise your heel, but you're going to crush his head. What does that immediately tell us about all of that? We have a Savior on the way. It's the first mention that a Savior's going to come. So as we read the rest of the Bible, those themes are going to expand and move forward. Now let me give you a massive word that you can bring out and impress your friends, okay? Progressive revelation. And I'm going to throw a lot of big words at you over the next few weeks. If there's something you don't understand, raise your hand and ask a question. I'm going to try to explain as as best I can. I'm trying to learn to talk slower for the benefit of some of you. You're like, you just talk too fast, stop it. Okay, I didn't want to be an auctioneer. God called me to be a pastor, okay? (laughs) Progressive revelation. When you start in Genesis, you don't know near as much as if you read through and get to Matthew. Does that make sense? And when you hit Matthew, you still don't know everything that you would need to know until you get to the end of Revelation. The Bible is progressive and expanding upon all these themes so that we will know more about God and his plan for history as we move forward. And that's going to be a central part of understanding why dispensations exist. Now, again, we're not going to get to it, but why am I telling you all that? Because if this is the first mention of the word church, we've got to take notice. And I've found seven things, three of them I stole from Charles Ryrie, the other four are my own, Okay. There are seven things that I've noticed here that is going on in this one statement in this verse. We need to take note of them. So let's read the verse. We'll back up and we'll break it down. Verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, if you've come out of a Catholic background, you were always taught that what this is, is that at this moment, Peter was made the first pope, declared by Jesus himself. And everybody who was to succeed as a pope from him in the Catholic Church is actually directly related to Peter. That's not true. Okay? And let me give you the reason why we know it's not true. And if you have a marginal note, you'll see how they break it down for you. Peter's name here means stone. It means probably something you can fit in your hand. Something you could probably throw with ease, it wouldn't be a problem. You are Petros, stone, Peter. And on this Petra, which means big stone. In fact, in Matthew 27, when it talks about that they came to the tomb where they laid Jesus, and it was a tomb that was hewn out of a rock, the word they used for rock there, of which a tomb to lay dead people was hewn out of, that is called Petra. That's what we're talking about. We're talking the difference between this and this. Does everybody see that? So there's something different that's going on here. So let's read it again. 
I also say to you, you are Peter, you're stone. And upon this Petra, large, massive, huge, good googly moogly rock is what it means. I will build my what? Church. Let me give you the definition of church. It is the Greek word ekklesia. Let me spell it for you so that you'll understand this. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Ekklesia. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. That's right. You came to a Bible church today. We study the Bible. That's what we're doing. Came to study. Work up a sweat. Anybody sweating yet? I think I am. I don't know. If you see me wipe my forehead with my sleeve, you know we're in trouble. Ecclesia. The word ek means out. The word kaleo means to call. You put these things together and you have to call out. Or the called out ones. Anybody ever been called out in your life? That's not good, right? But this is good. It means an assembly. A community. A gathering or a throng of people under a common purpose. There's something that unified them together to be separated from what they were. Now here's the thing. If the church is a called out people, what are they called out from? The world. This idea of being called out in Jesus purposefully using this word. It's never been uttered before. So he's just sticking it out there. And I love how Jesus does that. He kind of dingles it out there, makes you wonder a little bit. And I'm going to say it again in two chapters. He does that, right? Ecclesia. If we are called out, it automatically gives this idea of a separation that has taken place. Well, notice on this huge, massive rock, I am going to build my church. Now, what is this huge, massive rock? I think that if we look at what Peter's confession is, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact of Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. I don't know if there's a better calling card for the church to have. Is it possible to share the gospel with people without them understanding who Jesus is, especially in relation to God? No, why? Because the problem is, is my sin separates me from a righteous God. And so I need a righteousness like God's in order to be accepted by God. Jesus Christ, being the promised King, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God, has a righteousness like his. And when he dies on a cross, though he didn't deserve it, his righteousness can now be put in my stead because he's taken my sin. Does everybody see that? So it's important to have this down. This is the banner of what the church will be called to do. So notice this. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Number one, Jesus does the building. Does everybody see that? Here's the greatest problem we have. Oh, there's something new that's going to happen? Let me get my fingers on it. Because we know how it should go. We know the best way. We have all the experience. How dare you tell me? Don't you know how long I've taught Sunday school? And we almost have this form of pride about how something's going to move forward as a part of the church. How much we would learn if we just stop and recognize, you know what we need to do? We need to be prayerful. We need to be humble and reverent. We need to watch God do what God does. How many people are familiar with the beginning of Acts? Acts chapter 2, you familiar? Do you think it's any coincidence that you see such phrases as, and the Lord added this many people to their number? And the Lord added people daily. 
And the Lord brought 3,000 to the church today. Man, that's a growth problem you want, right? But who did the building? And what location were they meeting in? Where were they located? What was their physical address? You might know. They were meeting in houses. They didn't have one because the church wasn't a building. The church is a conglomeration of people united around a common purpose. Guess who built that? Jesus did. Now, if he built it, what does that tell you about it? Second observation, what's that? It's perfect. <laughs> On his end, yes. You think I'm a perfect pastor? Be careful. Here, speak in the mic. Are the people of the church perfect? No. Is his design and instruction for the church perfect? See, that's what's interesting about what the Word of God is able to do. Is in our not matching up situations, God's Word's got an answer for you. So, yes and no. We'll give you credit, okay? Gold star for you. Well, silver star. Okay, we'll do that. But, now think about this. If God's going to, if Christ is going to build his church, what does it say about the church? It's whose? It's his. I will build my church. I'm so excited he didn't say, I will build the Presbyterian church. I will build the Baptist church. I will build the Bible church. Jesus was not a fan of denominations. Jesus is a fan of the church. How do I know? Well, because he purchased it with his blood, so it was pretty expensive. Number two, everybody needs to get out of his way so that he can build it. Number three, if you build something, if you make something, it's yours. Anybody whittle? We've talked about this before. No whittlers? It's just what we do down south? Okay. Anybody ever built anything? I built my son's swing set in the backyard. Took nine hours. And I'll admit, when he swings on it pretty high, that thing does go, he's alive. I'm okay. We might have him start wearing a helmet when he gets on it, but I don't know. Now, did I make the wood and everything? No, but I put that sucker together. I tell you what, I did. And he'll tell me sometimes, Daddy, thank you for building my swing set. Nine hours was all of a sudden worth it just to hear that come from his lips. Thank you, Jesus. Does everybody see the ownership, the pride that takes place in something as simple and silly as that? And yet Jesus is talking about what he's doing to bring people together. Does everybody see that? What is it to bring people together? That's his church. You know what that means? Is that I need to be very careful about anything I have to say that could slander his church. Because just because part of his body may not agree with my perspective on the Bible doesn't mean that all of a sudden I have an unfounded, assertive right to start beating up the bride. Does that make sense? Understanding that it's his church puts a lot of things in perspective. How about this, the third part that we, get, we gather from this? The church is more powerful than hell. What if we understood this? What if we believed this? Think for a moment. Everybody imagine with me. Don't raise your hand, but just think for a second. One of the reasons I don't evangelize people is because of blank. If fear came in your mind, then you believe that there is something greater than the church's power that it's been given by Christ. You see what I'm saying? We've allowed for something to become a greater authority in our life. There's nothing godly about that. In fact, 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. That's not part and parcel of who God is and what God desires for his children. No, what we find is, is the church is powerful. 
Is it powerful because you and I are working hard, doing better, trying harder, being better people? No, we're not bettering ourselves. Physically, we're getting worse all the time. All God's people said? Exactly, because we can all reveal to that, right? Some of us are thinking about taking out stock in Bengay just to get by for the rest of this year. It's okay. But spiritually speaking, is prayer powerful? Isn't that a blessing from God? Is His Word powerful? Isn't that a blessing from God? Isn't it when you are existing in godly fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ and encouraging one another on to love and good deeds as we're told in Hebrews 10? Isn't that great? Have you ever set out to encourage somebody and you walked away encouraged? That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church. The church is powerful. Hell has no claim on the church. Hell is for the dead. The church is for the living. There's a massive difference. Not only that, here's a fourth observation, closely knit, but a little bit different. Hell has no victory, and it will not dominate the church. Hell has no victory. If you've paid attention to evangelicalism, especially in the past 25 years, I'm concerned, but I'm not hopeless. Why is that? Because the church belongs to Jesus. Because he's the one who builds it. In fact, if you look at some of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that Jesus talks to, Church of Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 or 8, I think it is, he also has the power to shut down the church. Individual local churches. It all rests in his hands. He decides what he does with the churches. The church is his. And so any threat of evil, any threat of the sanctity of marriage, any threat that would, would come against us of, of we need to be more involved in politics, anything that would come against us, of, well, you should be doing this ministry, what you ought to do, how the church should look to certain people and opinions, guess what? None of that stuff matters a hill of beans. Why is that? Because if any of it gets it off the target that Jesus has put forward for the church, it ceases to be an obedient church. Those things are not welcome in Jesus' church, period. They have no place because it's his. It belongs to him. The church will not be defeated by evil. He guarantees it. He guarantees it with his promise. He guarantees it with his blood. The church will not be defeated. Here are three other things that are interesting about this that are a little bit more general. Number five, it's obvious that this is a future work. I will. It hadn't happened yet. I will build my church. Does everybody see that that's something future Jesus is talking about? It's important for you to grasp that. Think about that. It is something that is future to happen from the time that Jesus said it. The sixth one. This is obviously not the same as the kingdom. How do we know that? Kingdom is mentioned 55 times, the word basileia, and it's translated kingdom. Kingdom is never translated church. So when Jesus brings in this idea of my ecclesia, And he brings this brand new word that is not basileia, and he only uses it sparsely. He's doing it to show you an incredible point. This is something that is completely distinct from the kingdom. The last thing to observe about this, this is different from the theocracy of Israel. This is not a unified government of which deity itself reigns from the throne of David. It's not talking about an earthly conquering entity. This is something completely different. And this is why 
The concept of the church is never mentioned in the Old Testament. This is a brand new thing that God is going to do. It's a brand new entity. It's a brand new ministry. It's a brand new calling. It is a brand new thrust of which salvation and demonstrating eternal life will come through. Now, let me show you why this is interesting. Though the church is not the kingdom, look at the next thing that's said, because this messes a lot of people up. Verse 19, I will give you, and that's singular, so I believe it's talking to Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Why is that? Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of when the church starts. How do we know? Because the Holy Spirit comes upon, as Jesus said, I will go and I will ask my Father and He will send the Helper to you. So the church begins in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people get saved at that moment. That preaching came through Peter. Acts 2.37 And they were pierced to the heart. That's conviction about the gospel. They were now saved, redeemed people. So, did Peter have the keys to unlock the kingdom of heaven for the Jews? He did. How about in Acts 10, Cornelius' house? Are we familiar with this? Cornelius was a what? He was a Gentile. He's not a Jew. This is somebody who hasn't had all this old stuff in the Old Testament. And yet, the instrument that God uses in order to reach the Gentiles for the very first time and unlock the opportunity to be in the kingdom at that point is Peter. Not Paul. Paul still had about 14 years of training before he was ready to get in there and start working for the Lord. But Peter's the person that was used. What does this tell us if the church is not the kingdom of God? That entrance into the kingdom of God would now come by way of the church. Everybody remember John 3? Unless you believe, you can't see what? Or unless you repent, you can't see what? Kingdom of God. You can't see it. It's not available to you. And so notice as revelation progresses and Jesus makes this incredible claim to you, I'm going to give the keys to the kingdom. And when you share the gospel with people and they believe, and when someone believes, they automatically become part of the church. When that happens, they are now ready for entrance into the kingdom. You've now opened this entire new area for them that they didn't have before. Now, intro sermons are always weird. Because I have three hours of stuff already prepared I want to share with you. But I'm also a merciful guy. So I'm not going to hurt you today. we got a lot to learn. But here's what I want you to do at least, at least when you leave here. By the way, we have Sunday school today. Don't, don't forget to go. But at least what I want you to get is the church is precious because Jesus builds it because it belongs to him. Because as great as the power of evil and hell may seem, it will never overcome it. But it is something distinctly different from what we understand of the kingdom program in history and what we understand of the rulers of Israel in history. This is something brand new. And this is something that I want you to get. If you don't get anything else out of what we look at the church, understand this. The church is significant because nothing in history has ever existed like the called out assembly, the church. Nothing has ever existed like this. And we are such a ridiculously privileged people full of blessing from God himself in this age that we currently live with different responsibilities set in front of us. Being unfaithful in them almost seems ludicrous. It seems like a silly option to not be faithful. 
and all that he's called us to. I hope that you get that. And if for some reason that doesn't penetrate your heart or make a difference in maybe how you've thought about the church in general, pray about it. Ask for God to change your heart so that we think more biblically about that. And that's what I want us to do is think more biblically about the church. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. I pray, God, this is a good starter for us, that we would be meditating, uh, that we would be mulling this over, that we would ask, God, for your Holy Spirit to bring to our hearts a greater understanding of the church. And pray, God, that you bless the coming weeks. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.